Earlier today, Fraser Health talked about providing a new option when it comes to contact tracing in hopes of getting more people who have tested positive for COVID-19, getting that information out there and getting the information to anybody they might have been in contact with. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Dr. Victoria Lee, the CEO of Fraser Health. Dr. Lee, thanks so much for taking some time again. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, last time we were talking, it was about uh, the fact that contact tracers were having difficulty reaching people by phone. Uh, people either weren't answering the phone, weren't returning the calls. Uh, you had talked about uh, going uh, down some different ways as far as texting or other ways to reach people. Uh, so what does this do as far as uh, putting a website out there in hopes of getting more people uh, contacted? Yeah, absolutely. And uh um, very much appreciate the follow-up because, uh, you know, I think what we heard, especially because we have most of our cases in the 20 to 39-year-old range, is that they were really looking for a technology-driven solution. And, you know, having um, been on the phone for investigation of contacts and outlining all of those for sometimes can be hours to days at a time isn't the best way for them to engage So to just give another option available that's modernizing our work is um, our, um, our, our, our hope with this solution. Will this speed up the time then? Because one of the concerns has been people who know they have tested positive uh, aren't seeing that information shared publicly for days uh, until several days later or are concerned that the people that they may have been in contact with aren't contacted in a timely fashion. Will this change that? I think that's an important point as well. And if I may uh, go into a little bit about the contact tracing journey, because it's a bit more uh, inclusive than what people might think. So most people think that their journey begins once their lab test comes back. Um, What it actually goes back to is uh, two days before when you're symptomatic for potential exposure. And then once people have symptoms, they take often a couple days to get tested, and that's why we urge everyone to get tested as soon as they have mild symptoms. And after getting tested, of course, the lab results can take 24 to 48 hours. Usually, individuals are notified um, if they signed up for text messaging and e-health prior to public health receiving that information. There's usually a little bit of uh, time before the individual is notified versus public health. So this actually cuts down that time as well as the individuals working on that contact tracing, as you mentioned. And then it also looks at the full journey that contact tracing needs to take uh, into account. And so regardless of how quickly we get onto this, there's always going to be some days uh, between when you're notified as a contact versus when the initial exposure was just because of the whole journey. So with this new tool then, where somebody can go on the website and complete a form uh, about uh, the the fact that they have tested positive, what does anything change then as far as does the person then uh, put their contacts into the form and then it's up to Fraser Health to put to make sure the people that are listed as contacts are told, in fact, that they are contacts? Yes. So the form will enable us to work more efficiently and effectively and is more patient-centered in terms of not taking so much of people's time on the phone. However, we will still contact everybody to check in and validate the information as well as quickly ensure that the instructions are accurate. And what we'll do is connect with all all of the contacts ourselves 
And uh, the only uh, request that we do have is for everybody that tests positive to ask their households to isolate right away. Uh, what do you say to people that might have concerns about putting sensitive medical information into a website form? Yeah, another excellent question. Of course, with health information, we are absolutely uh, absolutely at the highest level of security in terms of abiding by all of the privacy uh, rules. Uh, before this was launched, it went through all of the security checks and went through all of the health uh, linkages in terms of information system uh, to ensure that people's private information is co- uh, kept confidential. Uh, it has uh, gone through all of those testing before being publicly launched. So we're confident that we will be abiding by all of those um, privacy legislation, uh, which is quite uh, uh, restrictive. Uh, and we will be ensuring that happens, of course. And just going back to the the number you said uh, that the majority of new COVID-19 cases in Fraser Health are people between the ages of 20 and 39. So it's a younger group. We're not talking about people that are in long-term care. We're talking about people who are in the community. Why is it you think we're seeing the bulk of the cases in that age group? Yeah, I think uh, we have been seeing those uh, the demographic uh, impact of the 2039-year-olds year uh, increasing quite early in the summer, and that trend is continuing. I think what we're also seeing is more widespread community transmission as well uh, in other demographics. However, I think uh, in terms of uh, actual work that's required, we want to make sure that uh, we provide options that are more diverse for that population uh, to ensure that people are abiding by public health orders, but we are also able to quickly contact uh, those that may have been exposed. Are the restrictions working then, do you think, as far as right now the ban on social gatherings and all of the other restrictions, recommendations and orders that are in place? I think um, right now we are seeing our uh, number of COVID-19 cases that have been relatively stable in the past a couple of weeks. We did not see a big outbreak from some of the uh, religious uh, um, celebrations such as Diwali. So we'd like to acknowledge and thank everybody for following public health orders. We do see some uh, exceptions to that and we are following up with those with progressive enforcement as well. And just wanted to go uh, back to the numbers as well. With this new tool uh, that focuses on contact tracing, uh, from what I understand, uh, it's uh, there are hundreds of cases could be done within an hour, or sorry, within 24 hours uh, of lab confirmation. How will this change that? Will this greatly increase the, the number of cases, the investigations being done, and, and reaching out to people to, to get to those people faster? Yeah, another important question, because as you know, with the number of uh, cases that we've seen and increases that we've seen, we have to quickly and uh, um, in a very flexible way change what we do. Uh, So over the past uh, several weeks, we have expanded our teams. We've hired more than 500 people. We deployed more than 100 and partner with PHSA and Statistics Canada for their support as well. So even without this form, we can handle over, uh, over 600 cases per day uh, and notifying cases within 24 hours. We are still seeing a uh, number of people that do not answer phones. So I'd like to encourage everybody to ensure that they're still answering Fraser Health phone uh, calls. And uh, we, with this new solution, we will be adding additional efficiency. I don't know what that will look like. It'll 
be highly dependent on how many people actually use this online form and would love to use this opportunity to encourage everybody to use uh, the online form when they get their positive results as soon as possible. And they can reach that on the Fraser Health website? Yes, it's readily available and also BCCDC if you've um, signed up for the text message or eHealth, the uh, website will direct uh, them to the Fraser Health uh, uh, website as well. All right, Uh, Dr. Lee, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, Thank you so much for having me and uh, for the opportunity to connect again. All right, that is Dr. Victoria Lee, the Chief Medical Health Officer in Fraser Health, also the President and CEO. Well, if you have changed how you are doing your holiday shopping this year, maybe you've changed how much you plan to spend or how you are spending your money, maybe where you are spending your money, you are not alone. And a new Insights West poll shows that a lot of Canadians, and especially British Columbians, have, well, decided to spend a bit less and, in many cases, shop in different locations than they might have in the past. Steve Mossop joins us now, the president of Insights West. Steve, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me on the show, Jill. I'm not a surprise, I think, as we are dealing with the pandemic and all that goes with that, whether it's job loss, higher stress levels, totally different holiday plans, no matter what you would normally have done. But what did you specifically find when asking people about how much they are spending on the holidays? Well, we've been tracking the the financial impact of COVID-19 on Canada as well as British Columbia for eight months now. This one really struck me because it's the size of the number. It's that 42% of BC residents plan to spend less this year compared to previous years. And that includes almost 20% who say they will spend significantly less. So that's a big number. You know, we often measure our economic progress in single-digit percentages when we have recessions or if we have uh, good news happening. So this is a big one. And did you also ask people as far as, because I think there's an assumption that a lot of people are ordering online for because they don't want to physically go to stores, but then there's also this big push to shop local. There is a, a continuing trend, and we've been tracking that for uh, nine years, really, and it's, it's, uh, every year it seems to go up. But this year, it's a, it's a spike in the curve that really struck me as well, where we have 61%, double the number, who say that they're going to do more online shopping this year than last year. Last year, it was only 33%. So that's significant. We also found that uh, about 64% say that they plan to do the majority of their shopping online. So it's not just, uh, you know, I'm going to try it out, but the majority of their shopping for the majority of people. And when you ask people about shopping online, I I would automatically, my brain goes to the bigger companies and getting things uh, as fast as you can. But did it go go into it all, uh, whether or not that that also meant making sure to try and support local businesses that also have online options? That's been an ongoing theme as we saw the pandemic really squeeze the small and medium-sized businesses. And, you know, the big players like Amazons and Walmarts of the world have really taken a bit of a hit in the media because of... Uh, a number of things, but mostly it's because they tend not to support local businesses as much as local business. So we have about a third of shoppers who, despite their spending less overall, a third of shoppers say they're going to spend more with Canadian-owned businesses and even a higher number, 40%, more with BC. Then we get into this hyper-localization effect where businesses in their own municipality and in their own neighborhood are also getting those kinds of numbers whereas only about 5% intend to spend more with the big international businesses.
Hmm. Uh, were you surprised at all by that shift or, or that change as far as shopping habits? Maybe the magnitude, because uh, we found in the past that people love to say that they support Canadian businesses, but when it comes down to practice and it comes down to pricing, they often forget that when they're at the checkout or, or they're at the, you know, uh, the uh, the online checkout as well. So to see people actually follow through, it'll be interesting to see when the retail numbers are finalized, what that number means for British Columbia. But I think this time around, because the size of the numbers, we we should expect to see some differences and see some positive impact on local business. Uh, about half of the shoppers, uh, people that responded uh, to this as well, uh, said that they started their shopping earlier this year. And uh, I've, I've certainly, and again, I have no scientific evidence of this, but it does seem with Christmas lights up and decorations, it seems like people, I guess because we're not traveling as much, well, at all, really, and doing things that people who celebrate Christmas have gone out have gone out of their way to do it a bit more, uh, maybe not necessarily spending more, but but doing more things for it. Yes, and you're correct. Half the shoppers tell us they started their shopping earlier than usual. Um, maybe that's not a surprise, but uh, I think it's driven by the, the, the stories around shipping backlogs and inventory availability. There's been lots of stories about, you know, get your, get your orders in now, otherwise you're not going to make it. So the fact that we found that 42% of shoppers finished their shopping before November 30th, that's, that's a pretty amazing number. What, sorry, what number of shoppers before November? Oh, sorry, it was, I, I have that number wrong. It's 6% who have completed 100% of their okay. shopping before <laughs> November 30th. The average shopper has finished about half of their shopping by the end of November. So a little, sorry to alarm you, if, if, you're, one of the, if you're one of the procrastinator 24% who hasn't started yet, then uh, that's something to be worried about. And I guess, too, yeah, that number seemed very, very high. But I wonder, too, if for people that still enjoy and following all of the rules, but enjoy actually going into the stores, if there was also some concern that we might go back, depending on the COVID-19 numbers, that we might go back to a scenario where stores were shutting down again. Yes. And, and although Dr. Bonnie Henry has repeatedly said that that doesn't seem to be on our horizon at all, there is uh, there are other jurisdictions that have done that, whether it's overseas, if you look at Places in the UK and Italy and France and even Ontario have, have taken some much harder restrictions than what we have. There is that urgency, like get it done now because you don't know what next week is going to bring. Uh, I found it interesting in these findings, too. And we were talking earlier on the program uh, from uh, some numbers released from the BC Centre of Disease Control uh, that looked at specifically, it was the results of the survey of about 400,000 British Columbians impacted by the pandemic. And your survey touches on this, too, that age group of 18 to 34 uh, in the BC CDC, it was 18 to 29, but still talking about a lot of the same people, uh, much, very hard hit by the pandemic. But in this, in your numbers, they still plan to spend a bit more. Yes, so that is a bit of an anomaly we found throughout the pandemic in the early days, especially that they were the segment that was hardest hit. They were hit uh, from their jobs. They were hit, uh, their incomes dropped. Uh, they were hit mentally and emotionally more than other segments of society. Yet here we are eight months later, and they're, they're saying they're going to spend a, a larger proportion, so 23% uh, of the 18-year-old group say they're going to spend more than last year, but it's only 9% of the 55 plus crowd. So that is a bit of an anomaly and there's speculation about the impact that CERB has had on that. You know, you talk to some 
22-year-olds who are financially better off than they've ever been because of the, the financial support the government's giving. So I think we're capturing a little bit of that. I wondered about that because there there are people in that age group, especially who maybe didn't make a lot of money in the previous year, who actually got a raise going on CERB. And I, I was curious about that too, if that's what we're seeing. I think so, because in, in earlier days, you know, in May and June, when CERB was just getting defined and coming out, these people had lost their jobs. They were super worried. Yes, they got some government support. But here, let's fast forward to six months later, and the, that number, you know, almost $2,000 a month adds up for a 20-year-old that's used to making less than that and working long hours. Hmm. Well, interesting uh, findings as we get uh, closer to uh, the holidays. Steve, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for your time. appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. That is Steve Mossop, the president of Insights West. Some major developments, it appears, in the case of Meng Wanzhou at a courtroom, taking place in a courtroom in Vancouver. This was first reported by some U.S. news organizations, Wall Street Journal, first getting the story of the discussions about a plea agreement. So we are going to bring in Richard Curland, who is an immigration lawyer and a policy analyst who has been following closely along with this. This case, Richard. Thanks so much for having for being back on the show with us. A pleasure. Uh, so, what do you make, and how significant is it that we've now learned? Apparently, the U.S. Justice Department in discussions uh, talking about a possible plea agreement with lawyers from Meng mm-hmm. Wanzhou. Well, the discussions have been ongoing. What's new is public disclosure last night of these discussions by Wall Street Journal. Uh, only people close to discussions could have released this information at this time. And so what does that mean? Uh, You have two ways to go. Uh, Case resolves while President Trump is still in office. What would motivate him politically or even personally to end this? Uh, The other option is uh, President-elect Biden. Uh, President-elect Biden is going to have to meet with uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, typically February, as uh, tradition requires. And Canada can say this, and this is the thing. Uh, President Biden, you can blame all of this on your predecessor, uh, who publicly said that essentially uh, Ms. Meng is a pawn in a trade war. Uh, And the new evidence is that White House counsel, a lawyer from the White House, has put an affidavit in the file saying uh, President Trump was willing to use her as a uh, trade war uh, piece on the board. Uh, So given all of that, uh, Canada may, uh, Mr. President, use Section 23 of the Extradition Act that gives a minister, not the prime minister, a minister, uh, the right to terminate extradition proceedings at any time for no reason at all. So how do you want to play this, Mr. President, your way or our way? And uh, for Ms. Meng, uh, delay helps her. I don't think she should be admitting to any wrongdoing if there was no wrongdoing. Uh, And she will have uh, an inconvenience, continued detention, but detention that allows her to uh, keep her millionaire lifestyle and her multi-million residential property here in Vancouver with uh, an unsightly electronic monitoring bracelet on her ankle. On the other hand, are two detained Canadians. 
That's what should push the Canadian government to act and act now. It seems clear after the last few weeks of testimony in court, and I attended, uh, defense counsel turned this extradition case into a Swiss cheese case full of holes. Uh, and so it, it's the court also pushed forward the timeline. The court's not going to render a decision on important issues until early fall. And that means that the judicial process is going to take longer, probably, than the political process. Uh, so why delay things further? Based on all the new information that's come to light uh, due to uh, open court testimony, uh, Canada can consider this new information and new documents. And what exactly is this new info? RCMP admitted under oath they seized uh, Ms. Meng's cell phones, electronic equipment, quote-unquote, at the behest of the FBI. Another RCMP officer admitted on the stand that, yes, I've made a horrible mistake. I gave those passwords, those passcodes uh, of Ms. Meng to the wrong people. And those passcodes ended up with FBI. And, and it got to the last uh, kind of nail in the coffin was when an RCMP supervisor for Vancouver International Airport was asked by defense counsel, hypothetically, you were supposed to arrest um, immediately. And the hypothetical part of this, if Ms. Mung was questioned for two days, by CBSA for ostensibly customs immigration and then arrested, would that be an immediate arrest? And she said, yeah. So there's the, the, this case is unraveled. Why prolong everything? Uh, Canada's taken two years of economic sanctions by China. We have our two Canadian citizens detained. No one's hands are clean in this. In Beijing, Ottawa, or Washington, time to cut the Gordian knot, set Ms. Meng free, take a plea on uh, Huawei's activities, or vigorously pursue Huawei in court, but you don't go personal. You don't take humans in the pursuit of trade, diplomatic, or economic uh, priorities. That's just not the way civilized nations behave today. Uh, so a lot to unpack there. I want to start with the, <laughs> the timing. And you, you mentioned off the top, these talks have been, been going on. There are only a, a select number of people that know about them. So is it timing? Uh, I, I don't imagine the leak was an accident. Mm. Is it timing that this was made public and the Wall Street Journal got wind of this? Absolutely. Uh, there are three levels of these talks. You got the talks between Ms. Monk's counsel in Canada and Department of Justice Canada. Her counsel in the United States with uh, Department of Justice in Washington. You've got our, uh, the U.S. State Department with Global Affairs. And you've also got uh, the Prime Minister's Office and Advisors with uh, the Office of the President of the United States and their advisors. So many levels, uh, so many communication lines. Uh, I don't think leaks happen by accident. What's going to happen over the next few days is irresistible public opinion will swell and motivate politicians to simply put an end to this based on the new information and documents that have come to light in open court in British Columbia. 
One of the conditions, though, uh, that was leaked was that Ms. Meng would have to admit some level of guilt. Uh, and, mm. and like you said, she's always said she was, isn't guilty. Her own father, the head of the company, has said it wouldn't be worth, even if it granted her freedom, he would not endorse her lying, he's saying, because he believes yeah. she didn't do anything wrong. So how do we get past that? Well, this is what I've been looking at in open court. What exactly uh, is the evidence? It boils down to a PowerPoint presentation that she gave back in 2013. Well, that PowerPoint presentation was given by American to Canadian law enforcement authorities to justify opening the case in the first place. And guess what happened? (laughs) The Americans gave an incomplete copy of the PowerPoint presentation, leaving out the potentially exculpatory material. So this thing was poisoned from the get-go, uh, and uh, I and the internet, the, the technical fraud. The reason it sticks to the wall here uh, on on even a reasonable suspicion standard is based on get this damage to the international reputation of HSBC, the same bank that has paid two billion dollars in fines for <laughs> violating uh, sanctions, anti-money laundering, and fraud. And that's the bank that gave the Department of Justice in Washington the PowerPoint presentation. The bank, by the way, was also embroiled in this Iranian trade sanction stuff, which was not illegal in Canada. So the banks moved there, muddied the waters, and delayed uh, their case in the American courts, or uh, set up a, oh, we were duped by this person from China. We had no idea we were violating Iranian sanctions. So uh, from beginning to end, there's something wrong here. I actually followed the money. Turns out HSBC in in the United States uh, doubled up on its paid lobbyists, doubling from 12 people in 2016 to 2018, like the, when, just when Ms. Mung was going to be arrested, to 25 lobbyists with the Department of Justice. I wonder what they asked. I wonder what they discussed. But uh, <laughs> Ms. Mung was arrested. Huawei was uh, attacked. And uh, the um, uh, distraction of Iranian sanctions uh, for financial transactions, not illegal in Canada, Illegally in the United States uh, has bought HSBC significant time because if HSBC got caught again uh, dealing with Iran, uh, they could lose their license to operate as a bank in the United States. So the pressure was on on all sides of this game, uh, but uh, Canada got uh, tugged in. Uh, and uh, we've paid the price. Uh, it's time for America to do the right thing uh, and uh, maybe have the uh, transition team suggest to the outgoing Trump administration to swallow their own bitter pill uh, so that the incoming uh, team doesn't have to deal with this any longer. Maybe President Trump will see up. Uh, um, uh, political or even personal opportunity here uh, that would resolve things? Uh, I don't know. But I suspect over the next few days, uh, the political heat in Ottawa is going to turn up, ratchet up big time, and we may see a minister review all the new information that's come to light, including documentation, admissions, affidavit from White House counsel admitting President Trump used Ms. Mung as a 
trade pawn or willing to do so. And uh, someone just turn off the lights and close down this case. Uh, and Richard, just before I let you go, do you think this could be a way, if this did play out, if there was some kind of an admission of guilt, if this this uh, deferred prosecution went ahead, is this a way that the two Michaels, these Canadian citizens, could be freed and it wouldn't then be a threat to Canadians in the future that China just scoops up uh, people when it's mad, uh, that we could have a resolution that works? Well, uh, I I strongly believe that uh, the two Michaels are inextricably bound up with the detention of Ms. Meng. Uh, When she's allowed to go, so will they in in short shrift. Uh, But there's an old saying from uh, law school, uh, no person is safe while Parliament is in session. Uh, so too in communist China. Uh, you'll never know what future regimes may do. Uh, but China, I, 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 I displeased, I'm personally displeased with uh, medieval tactics. Uh, in today's society, you want to be a global leader, you want respect from other countries, don't nab citizens from the streets of the mainland. That's just unacceptable in today's world, and hopefully China has learned a lesson there. All right, we'll leave it there for today. Richard, as always, thank you so much. Thank you. Keep well. That is Richard Curland. He is an immigration lawyer and policy analyst, and he has been following along with the Meng Wanzhou case. We'll keep you updated. Well, earlier today, Statistics Canada put out the latest numbers when it comes to the economy and adding jobs. According to Stats Canada, our economy added 62,000 jobs last month. And as we hear from Canadian press reporter Terry Pedwell, uh, there is, uh, that is a slower gro- growth rate than October. The unemployment rate would have been 10.9% in November, StatsCan says, had it included in calculations Canadians who wanted to work last month but didn't search for a job. The agency says one and a half million people searched for jobs in November, a small drop of 39,000 from October, but still more than the nearly half million or so who were looking for work in February pre-pandemic. So what do things look like here in B.C.? We've seen a slight change in the unemployment rate. And if you break it down city by city, if we look at Vancouver now sitting at 8.1 percent, that's from 9.7. Victoria, 6.3 percent. It was previously 7.6. Kelowna, 4.7 percent. Previously, 6.2. Let's bring in Todd Stone, the B.C. Liberal Jobs Economy and Innovation Critic. Todd Stone, thanks so much for being with us again. Yeah, it's great to be on your show. Thank you. Uh, what are your thoughts on where we are as far as job creation and getting people back into the workforce, people, many of whom lost their jobs during the beginning of the pandemic? Well, I think uh, bottom line is this. Uh, there's still a tremendous number of people who were working uh, last February before the pandemic uh, really hit with full force uh, who are not working today. Uh, about 37,400 British Columbians uh, that were employed uh, last February uh, are not uh, in jobs today. Uh, I would also highlight that uh, very concerning uh, embedded within the numbers released today uh, is that uh, women continue to be disproportionately impacted uh, by the pandemic. In fact, while uh, most of the job gains that uh, you just referenced uh, for this last month in British Columbia uh, came uh, as a result of men finding work or, or going back to their to their to their jobs. Uh, women over the age of 25 in British Columbia uh, actually lost jobs. About 4,000 jobs uh, were were lost in the month of November. So we can't have a recovery uh, in this province 
uh, if that inco- recovery doesn't include uh, women. Uh, and so there's a tremendous amount of work ahead uh, to, to fix that uh, uh, or address that challenge, uh, but also to put a, a detailed sector-by-sector jobs plan together that speaks to how we're going to get this, uh, this province back up on its feet uh, for the long term. So if we look at uh, what you just mentioned there, that that huge discrepancy uh, between men and women, what would you do if you were the jobs minister? What would you do or what could be done, do you think, to get more women back working? Well, we've been saying uh, fundamentally for for months now that uh, concurrent with the ongoing efforts by everyone involved to, to keep British Columbians safe and healthy, obviously that's the number one priority. Concurrent with that, we need a, a detailed jobs plan. Uh, our former government had a had a sector by sector strategy that uh, that laid out uh, targets and objectives and strategies that was all measured on an ongoing basis and everything was transparent. Uh, we don't have that with this government. So it, it, before you can you can uh, begin to address the problem, you number one have to acknowledge that there is a problem. We haven't heard that from the NDP government. They're not at this at this point acknowledging that. Uh, there's a there's a, a discrepancy here in terms of women being disproportionately impacted. And number two, uh, laying out a plan that details exactly what uh, what can be done. What we do know uh, is that a lot of the sectors that have not uh, seen a significant uh, improvement in uh, employment for women uh, tend to be uh, tend to be uh, sectors like retail and, and hospitality, tourism, uh, and so forth. Uh, but we also know that a lot of uh, women are, are having challenges getting back into the workforce uh, because of uh, continued uh, accessibility issues with respect to accessing childcare, uh, just as another example. So all of this needs to be addressed uh, in the coming weeks and months uh, in order to uh, to get women um, back into uh, their jobs and, uh, and uh, again, overall, uh, get this economy back up on its feet. Uh, and even that, and I mean, I, I, and I get what you're saying, and we have evidence that shows that, but it, it's a little disheartening to think here we are in December of 2020, and we have people who are going back, trying to get back into the workforce, and it's women who are the ones that are bearing the brunt of this, when it, that it, it appears to be the default, that it falls to women to suddenly figure out childcare and to figure out all of these things that are happening in a pandemic. Uh, well, I, I think that's exactly the issue. Uh, uh, without question, uh, it, it's it, it's it uh, unfortunately always seems to fall to 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 women who uh, bear a disp- disproportionate uh, amount of an of an impact when there's an economic slowdown, um, and it's why we we need to redouble our efforts at, at every level, and, and certainly as legislators uh, to uh, to to ensure that we're doing everything we can to ensure that there's a strong private sector driven uh, you know, economic recovery that benefits uh, women and, and indeed all British Columbians, uh, but one that also looks beyond just three to six months from now and looks at uh, how do we, how do we uh, position this province uh, coming out of this pandemic uh, in as strong a, a position as possible, leveraging uh, the innovation and the opportunities that are in front of us. Uh, as a result of this uh, of this crisis, so you know, lots of, of um, heavy lifting to do here, and these are the types of questions that I look forward to asking uh, the Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery, and and Innovation in the in the days ahead as as the legislature resumes. Uh, speaking of the minister, uh, that is Ravi Kalon. He was speaking with Mike Smith earlier today. I just want to play a couple of his comments and get your reaction. We're back around 98.5% of pre-pandemic uh, job levels. So, you know, that's uh, 
pretty significant. Uh, but, you know, we know as we get closer to that 100% mark, the number is going to slow and the, and the growth is going to slow. And, uh, you know, I, I wish we could flip a switch uh, once this vaccine gets rolled out and the economy would be full-fledged running again. But, you know, we know it's going to take some time. So in that sense, it seems like we're doing really well if we're already back into the 90s in the percentages of jobs that have returned. Well, yes, but again, when you actually talk in terms of, of people, uh, the numbers of people, uh, you're looking at uh, well over 37,400 uh, British Columbians, the vast majority of whom are women, uh, who are not uh, back in, 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 in the jobs that they had before the pandemic uh, started. So uh, that is not acceptable. And, and, you know, it's a bit rich to, to hear uh, anyone in the government talk about, uh, you know, how these things take time. Uh, we, we passed a, a stimulus package for, uh, for, for small business back in, in March, March 23rd, eight months ago. And uh, it took until the week before the provincial election for the premier to, to begin to roll out some business supports. Uh, and then he called a, an unnecessary uh, election, which delayed everything by another couple months. And, uh, you know, heck, if you're in the if you're in the tourism uh, sector, which is probably more decimated than any sector out there, uh, you, you still have to wait for recommendations to come back from a tax task force, which was established, uh, you know, when everyone knows uh, what's going on in tourism. And uh, frankly, no one's going to come up with any new new ideas that, that haven't already been thrown on the table in the in the previous uh, eight months. So uh, this is a government that has has been dragging its heels. Uh, in terms of, of, of flowing supports to small business in particular. Um, we're hearing now that they may delay the provincial budget, uh, which usually comes down every February. That might be a, a month or two later uh, this upcoming year. That's not going to help uh, get the supports into the, to the, into the hands of, uh, of, of those who really need it, and, and in particular in the small business sector, which is what well, we've got to get fired back up uh, in order to, to have a, a durable and long-lasting uh, economic recovery in this province. Uh, you mentioned hospitality. Uh, Minister Kalon was asked about that as well. Uh, well, the tech sector has been doing well uh, throughout, and uh, yeah. certainly I think we're going to be watching film and uh, television. You know, we're seeing a lot more uh, productions coming online and, and, uh, and, and people coming uh, to, to work. I think that's a really positive sign there. Uh, so really, that's going to be our focus. We're going to keep an eye on construction. We're going to keep an eye on film and television. Uh, you know, we, we may see a small decrease in the accommodation and food services. Uh, we'll have to just see what happens over the next month. I mean, we've already seen a lot, uh, I think more than a small dip when it comes to, to hospitality. What do you do, though, when the border is closed, people aren't traveling, and right now people in B.C. are being told don't travel in the province unless it's essential? Well, uh, the number one thing that's needed in, in uh, the hospitality sector and, frankly, uh, small businesses generally is uh, is a, a broader uh, array of supports that are going to help these businesses get through uh, what is going to likely be a long three to four months uh, through the winter. Uh, the small business recovery uh, grant that uh, that the minister and the NDP like to talk about um, is, is highly restrictive as an example. And uh, a very simple thing that they could do uh, overnight is they could, uh, they could dramatically streamline the application process and they could dramatically uh, uh, improve the eligibility 
uh, requirements for that so that it's a, it's a grant that's available to a, to a heck of a lot more businesses than it, it, it currently uh, is available to. That would go a long ways to helping uh, businesses get through these months. I mean, we're, we're going into the legislature in, uh, as of next Monday. And, uh, you know, there's, there's simple things that would make a real difference. In, in hospitality, for example, uh, the, the government did promise, as we did in the last election, to uh, uh, put a cap on the fees that are charged uh, by food delivery companies that are, frankly, uh, gouging the heck out of restaurants. Um, we learned that there's not likely going to be any legislation forthcoming next week or the week after to, to, to address that very simple uh, issue that would have a huge impact. Uh, restaurants are going to have to wait until we reconvene, uh, presumably next, uh, next February or later. Uh, that's not acceptable. So, again, those are the kinds of things that we'll continue to uh, put forward as, as uh, viable solutions uh, as we hold the government accountable for getting on with uh, uh, people working again and businesses uh, having the supports that they need. All right, Todd Stone, we'll have to leave it there for now. Thanks so much. Good chatting with you. Thank you very much. Have a good afternoon. You too. That is Todd Stone, BC Liberal Jobs, Economy and Innovation Critic. Well, we have been trying to showcase some positive news and some events that are taking place that are still allowed to take place, given the orders and the rules that are currently in place in this province. And one of those is going to be happening in White Rock next weekend, and it's being put on by the White Rock Baptist Church. And joining me to talk a bit more about what it's going to look like is Lisa Strew, who is the pastor to children at the White Rock Baptist Church. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, So what exactly, obviously looking a little different than events of the past, what are you going to be doing and people at the church doing next weekend? Well, we are hosting um, a drive-through event just as a way to reach out to our community because we realize that many of the events that they normally would be looking forward to have been cancelled and so we just want to in a very small way just let them know that we're here and that we care and hopefully in a small way we can be a blessing to them so they're just going to drive through our church parking lot we're going to have some lights up around the building and a few characters and blow-ups and then um, they're going to come just across the front of the church, and we will have a small gift bag that we would like to give to each family, just with some fun little goodies inside for them to enjoy together as a family. And I know there's been some confusion on drive through uh, events. Uh, some have been cancelled, others wondering if they are still allowed. But I'm, I'm guessing that uh, this, what's happening here, uh, you've checked and it is okay as far as the provincial uh, red, uh, restrictions and rules right now? Yeah, our plan right now is we're just waiting for um, Bonnie Henry's announcement uh, for next week, and then we will be calling in to uh, confirm that what we're doing is definitely going to be okayed by them. And uh, the families, as we've planned it all, you know, the families will not be getting out of their vehicles at all, and uh, we'll have a safe way of just passing um, a bag through to them. But we will wait until next week um, and just confirm that it's 100% okay for us to go ahead. But we're just having to plan and we're just kind of stepping out in faith a little bit and hoping that we'll be able to go ahead on the 12th. And have you noticed a change as far as the need from people in the community and also uh, the desire to have things like this that uh, have a little bit of Christmas and holiday cheer? Absolutely, because what we did, we're kind of building off of um, an event that we had for Halloween because we 
know what a big holiday that is for families, and we know how excited the kids are. And we normally have um, a Harvest Fest event where families come into the church, and we've got, you know, games and all kinds of fun things that happen, and we couldn't do it this year. And so we were thinking, how else can we have, um, you know, help the families to have a fun night So we did a trunk or treat in our parking lot, and we had 22 uh, cars that were decorated, and in a socially distanced way through tubes, we passed candy out as families walked by, um, you know, just car by car. Everything was all more than six feet apart, and we were blown away that we had five probably about 500 people show up to that event in our parking lot. And so we realized that definitely families were looking for things to do. And we were so blessed by the comments that we received back from these families because they felt everything was so safe and we followed every rule and regulation. And uh, it was it was just an amazing event. And so that's why we decided we've got to think of another thing that we can do for families uh, during this Christmas season, as we know that they obviously are looking for fun things that they can, you know, take their families to. And we just feel God has placed us in this community, in the White Rock South Surrey area, and we're just trying our best uh, to reach out and to be a blessing to the neighbors that God has given to us. How has it been not being able to have in-person gatherings? Oh, it's been awful. (laughs) It's been absolutely terrible. We miss um, our church family so much. And uh, being the children's pastor, um, I I miss the kids more than I can say. Um, And so any, you know, type of small way that we can have an opportunity um, to connect in a safe way um, is just, you know, such a blessing. And, um, yeah, we're just, we're just really excited. We're just thrilled that God has given us the chance. It's very simple. It's not by any means, you know, a big, um, extravagant thing. It's just a small, simple way of us saying we're here for you. If you ever need anything, we just want to let you know that we are here. We care. And uh, we just want to do this, light, this thing called life together. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so if it does go ahead and everything is, is deemed that, yes, it falls under the rules and it's mm-hmm. okay to happen, um, I understand it's the first 200 families uh, getting this gift package, the, the packages that have been prepared uh, by people donating their time. Uh, does it matter where the, the families are from or if they're part of uh, the church or not? Or, if it, or is it just to people who want to be, take part in this can come and take part? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. It's not, um, it's not intended for the church family. It's definitely intended, um, you know, for the community. I mean, the church family is more than welcome. We're, I mean, anybody is more than welcome to come. Um, But yeah, we're just, we're trying to do it, you know, obviously our intent was just to make a connection um, with those that, you know, are close to us. But we would love to, um, you know, say hi and Merry Christmas to anybody that would love to drive by and see us. All right. Well, it sounds like uh, if it goes ahead, which hopefully it does, it will be uh, a great and very welcome event in the community. Uh, Lisa Strew, thanks so much for taking a few minutes to chat with us today. Well, thank you very much. And I wish you a very safe and blessed Christmas. All right. Thank you again. That is Lisa Strew, pastor to children at the White Rock Baptist Church. They are planning a drive through COVID-safe event taking place. The plan is for it to take place on December 12th, as long as all of the rules can be followed.